Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. Let me invite you to take your Bible or your Bible app and open with me to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 18 is where we'll begin I want to welcome you back to church. Those of you who are joining us online or joining us on TV, thank you so much for being a part uh, of our worship service today. And also want to welcome those uh, who are here in person. If we haven't, have, you haven't had, yet had the chance to meet, I'm Matt, the lead pastor. I would love to meet you soon. And uh, we want to help you connect first and foremost to Jesus uh, but also to Jesus's family. This church has meant so much to my family and me. We actually chose to become a part of this church 13 years ago, never knowing that I would be the lead pastor. And we chose it because of what it meant uh, to us, and we would love to help get you uh, plugged in. If you haven't yet downloaded the app, I wanna encourage you to download the Bible Center app. There's a number of resources there, but one of the resources to highlight is the sermon notes. I love the the ability now for us to increase our sermon notes to you. It's not quite a sermon manuscript, but there's a lot more notes there now than what used to be. Uh, Some people like to follow along. Some people like to use it in their Bible studies during the week. And so whatever that's, however that's helpful to you, feel free to use it. Today, I want to tell you the story about a preacher who picked a fight, a preacher who picked a fight. The setting was the nation of Israel. Specifically, uh, it was Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is in the northern part of Israel. A number of us visited there back in February. We're going to be going again in 2022. Uh, You can see at the button there for Israel 2022 at the bottom of our website. But this is a picture I took from the top of Mount Carmel where the story, the true story I'm about to tell took place. It's famous for a number of reasons, not only because of the name Mount Carmel or Mount Caramel, but also this valley that runs around beneath Mount Carmel is the Valley of Jezreel. This is where the famous future battle of Armageddon will take place. I'm sure you've heard the word Armageddon. The time was about eight centuries before Jesus, and the problem in the story that I'm about to tell was drought. They were experiencing a nationwide drought. Now, the drought was the result of the wickedness of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. They were among the most evil rulers who've ever ruled in Israel. They killed the prophets of God. They had no respect for human life. It was one of the darkest times in Israel's history and many even of God's people, their hearts were growing cold. And so instead of worshiping the one true God, they set up altars to another God. Uh, It was almost, it really was a satanic idol by the name of Baal or Baal. And Baal was the fertility idol of the pagans. They counted on Baal to send rain for their crops. And so God sent a drought to remind them that the God they were serving didn't exist. There is no living God by the name of Baal, but he is the one true God. So in the middle of this drought, a hero comes on the scene by the name of Elijah. In Hebrew, the name Elijah means my God is Jehovah. And Elijah lived up to his name. Jehovah was his God. He loved the Lord. And even with a bounty on his head, he came to meet King Ahab. Elijah gave King Ahab a report that he and God had a deal. 
the deal was this. There would be no rain until Elijah said so. In other words, God gave him the authority to hold back the rain as the prophet of God, as the boots on the ground. Elijah was waiting until the people of God repented. So Ahab told Elijah, I love this, in 1 Kings 18, he says, you're the troublemaker of Israel. And Elijah looks at him back and he responds and he says, no, king, you're the troublemaker and your wife Jezebel along with you. And so Elijah reminds me a lot of this guy. If you've ever seen Braveheart, there's a scene in Braveheart. Of course, this isn't William Wallace, but maybe William Wallace looks something like, you know, Mel Gibson. But in the movie, they ask him, what are you going to do? And he looks at his army and he says, I'm going to go pick a fight. I'm going to go pick a fight. That's what Elijah reminds me of in this scene. I'm going to go pick a fight. And so Elijah told King Ahab to bring all of his satanic priests and meet him on Mount Carmel. He told Jezebel the same. You send all your hundreds of satanic priests and meet me on Mount Carmel for a high noon showdown between the false god Baal and the true God of Israel. And so they all met on Mount Carmel. You can stand in the place where this happened. It's chilling. Well, we find that Elijah was tired of God's name being smeared and God's people living wickedly. And so he basically threw down the gauntlet. He said this in 1 Kings 18, if the Lord is God, follow him. And if Baal is God, follow him. And then that's when Elijah instructed them to start stacking firewood. He told the satanic priests of Ahab and Jezebel to bring two bulls. They brought one bull for him and one bull for themselves, and they started stacking firewood. However, Elijah gave clear instruction that no one was to light the fire. He said that each party would take turns calling on their God and whichever God sent the fire from heaven to the altar would be the God of heaven and earth. He let the Baal gods have the first try. Picture as these satanic priests begin to dance around this, uh, this altar. And it says they started in the morning and it continued through noon. It continued through the afternoon all the way to evening. Picture them dancing and chanting and without being too graphic, we find that they actually even cut themselves. It was horrible what they were doing at this moment. But Elijah didn't, he, it's like he never took that college class, Diplomacy 101. Elijah purposely poked and picked. In the course of, of them running around the altar, Elijah said, shout louder. Or he said, maybe your God is busy. Maybe he's asleep and that's why he's not sending the fire. But then there's my personal favorite. I remember this as a kid, hearing this in Sunday school. He, he said, maybe your God's on vacation. Maybe your God's on vacation. I think I'm gonna like meeting Elijah in heaven. But they shouted and danced and chanted and nothing happened. Well, according to 1 Kings 18, it was Elijah's turn about the evening hour. And in the text, you get this idea that Elijah starts stacking firewood because all their dancing and chanting had broken the altar down. And so they set up the stones and they started stacking firewood. One piece of firewood, two pieces, three pieces, four pieces. 
until we finally had that altar stacked the way he wanted. And then they killed the bull and they put the bull on top of the altar, which was a common practice in the Old Testament, something that God had had told them to do before Jesus. And according to verses 36 and 37, it says this, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. He prayed this, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I, your servant, have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. In other words, send down the fire that these people may know that you are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And verse 38 is like the the climax of the story. Verse 38 says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the soil and licked up the water in the trench. And then all the people saw this. They fell down on their faces and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now this true story, This true account teaches us many things. It teaches us many things about God. It teaches us many things about how God planned to bring salvation, redemption through a specific people, the people of Israel. There's a lot of lessons we can learn from this particular story. But today I wanna highlight how this true story illustrates transformation in the Christian life. This was actually one of the favorite stories of the great Puritan preacher, Jonathan Edwards. He was at one time the president of Princeton. This was his favorite story that illustrated the way Christians are transformed, the way Christians change and grow in our lives. Now, we most often use the word salvation to refer to the event, the moment, or the time period, the season when one first begins following Jesus. When we put our faith in Jesus and first start following Jesus, we commit our lives to Jesus. And so we say from the Bible that we at that moment are saved. We might not know the day or the hour or even remember the exact moment, but when we put our faith in Christ, we experience initial salvation. But after we are saved and and until we go to heaven, we continue to journey with Jesus and he transforms us. And so we refer to this as transformation. He transforms us into the image of Christ. And so the Christian life is a journey. The moment I put my faith in Jesus, I didn't become instantly perfect in every area. I will not be without sin until I get to heaven. But When I first started following Jesus, he began to transform my life. The true story in 1 Kings 18 illustrates our transformation in the following way. Think of this. Just as Elijah stacked firewood on the altar and waited for God to ignite it, we too are responsible for certain spiritual disciplines, certain spiritual acts of obedience, certain spiritual activities as Christians that God can ignite in our hearts, resulting in genuine love for him and others. Now, today's sermon title is is this. We see today's sermon title, How Are We Spiritually 
transformed. Today's message is not primarily about how are we saved. We've talked about it in the past, and we'll talk about that uh, forever. As long as, as I'm preaching and as long as I have breath, we'll talk about the importance of salvation. But this story I just told you is a terrible illustration of someone's salvation. You say, in what way? Well, if you think about it, the people of Israel, through the leadership of Elijah, did some things to make God or put themselves in the position to participate with the fire when it fell. They made the altar, they set up the wood, they put the sacrifice on the altar. And so I would say it's a terrible illustration of salvation because you and I don't do anything to contribute to our salvation. We don't contribute our good works, our church membership, our good work. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin. That's all we contribute. But thankfully, Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he was buried and he rose again the third day. And because of what Jesus did for us, we can, we can put our faith in Christ and experience salvation that has nothing to do with us, but that's all completely the work of grace. So that's why I don't think this illustration is a great illustration of salvation because salvation is free. It's a free gift. However, once we put our faith in Christ, our transformation does involve our work. Just as Elijah contributed to the fire by adding wood, there's a sense in which we contribute to our transformation as Christians. In other words, God invites Christians to participate with him in our growth. Theologians call this synergism. Others call this big word like sanctification, experiential theology, practical divinity, holiness, practical holiness, Christian ethics, or piety. My favorite term out of all of that is to use the term spiritual formation. Uh, that's another name for Christian growth. Uh, we also refer to it as transformation. Jesus not only saves, but Jesus transforms. That transform part is about the Christian. It's how we grow into the image of Jesus. Now think about this today. Think about the areas in your life where you want to be transformed. Do you have any areas in your life that you want to be transformed? Is there any area of your life that when we start 2022, that you would like to say that you've grown over the year by walking with Jesus? If you're like most of us, there's multiple areas in your life. I know there's some areas in my life I want Jesus to transform in my life and give me greater faith and greater determination and greater courage. And, and I know the same is true with you. But the question is, how is that possible? How is that possible? How are we transformed? That's what we're gonna look at today. Here's today's big idea. Today's big idea is this. We stack the firewood and trust God to send the fire. We stack the firewood and trust God to send the fire. The entire message is that one sentence. We're gonna look at that one sentence for the rest of the message. We stack the firewood and trust God to send the fire. So throughout the message today, think about Elijah and how Elijah stacked the firewood and got the altar all ready, but then God was the one who sent the fire. 
What do we mean by this phrase? First of all, let's look at this first part. We stack the firewood. What do we mean by that? Well, we mean this. As Christians, we have certain responsibilities in our spiritual formation. In other words, Jesus invites us to do specific things to participate in our ongoing transformation. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says this, for we are co-workers, he's talking to Christians here in context, we are co-workers in God's service. As followers of Jesus, we participate with God in the work of God. Now you say, well, Pastor Matt, why did God set it up that way? Why didn't God just do it all like he did in our salvation? Well, I don't have all the answers, but that's just the way God has set it up. I like to think that the Lord is interested in the journey just as much as he's interested in the destination. I like to believe that the Lord loves fellowshipping and participating with his people. God loves his people. And so we get to participate in our own growth in the growth of a church in the impact of a community. We get to participate with God. First Timothy 4, 7, this is another one to remember. He says, exercise thyself unto godliness. If you're taking notes, the word exercise in the Greek is the word gymnasticize. Essentially, he is saying, gymnasticize, work it out, work out yourself unto godliness. What does this mean? Well, though we are no longer under the Old Testament law as Christians, we are called to obey the New Testament commands, beginning with what Jesus instructed in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Really, the rest of the New Testament is God double-clicking on different aspects of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a neat way to think about the New Testament. But keeping these commands alone, keeping what the New Testament tells us to do alone doesn't make us spiritual, just like Elijah stacking the wood doesn't create the fire. However, doing what Jesus invites us to do, this is so important to get this, doing what he invites us to do in the New Testament is like Elijah stacking the firewood. It puts us in the position to receive the fire when God sends it. And by fire, we're talking about transformation. We're talking about Christian growth, a love, a burning zeal for Jesus. Hopefully that makes sense. Only God can make us holy. Only God can transform our hearts. Only God can make us loving towards him and towards our neighbor, but we are called to posture ourselves to be ready for God to work. In other words, we get in the position and then God does the work, even as Christians. One of the best ways I can think to illustrate it is the way that we get a sunburn or the way we get a suntan, right? If, if you wanna get a sunburn, no matter, or suntan, no matter how much determination, no matter how much desire or discipline you may have, you cannot go into a dark room and grit your teeth and expect a suntan to just pop out on your skin. It doesn't work that way. No, the sun does all the work. However, it is our responsibility to put ourselves in a position to be exposed to the sun, and then the sun does the work. 
And so in the Christian life, there are certain works, there are certain activities that we do to put our hearts in the position for God to transform us into the image of Jesus. Some prefer to call these spiritual disciplines. Some call them spiritual habits. I'm not completely against those terms. I think they're good terms, but I think in our generation, if we're not careful, it can almost sound like self-help. And so I prefer to use the term means of grace. This is just a preference. This isn't a Bible. We're gonna divide over this kind of issue. I just prefer to call them means of grace. The following are examples. I'll give you some examples of some means of grace, some spiritual disciplines, if you will, that actually help our hearts get in the posture to receive God's continual transformation as Christians. One of those is reading our Bibles. By far, reading our Bibles is the number one way that our hearts are transformed into the image of Jesus. I'm gonna give you several of these, but they're not all equal. In the scriptures, by far, Psalm 1 teaches, blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Another one is meditating on contemplating on God's word. Another one is praying, gathering other believers for weekly worship. Like we do, we see that in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 10, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. We see this idea of spending time with other believers. I read this week that the Puritans, I never knew this, the Puritans used to call this conferencing. Conferencing, when a bunch of Christians or a few Christians get together and they just talk about what they're reading, they talk about the Lord, they share prayer requests. The Puritans called that conferencing. We call those small groups now. We like to think our ideas are really hip and cool, but they've been around a long time. You see it all the way in the book of Acts chapter two, but whether you call it conferencing or groups or just hanging out with other Christians that you know and encouraging each other, Sometimes you're talking about the things of the Lord and sometimes you're talking about other things in life, but it's life on life. That's a means of grace. God can use the determination to flee temptation, accountability that we may set up, replacing bad habits with good habits. Taking a day off sometime each week can be transformative. The Sabbath in the Old Testament and the principle of the Sabbath in the New Testament It doesn't have to be Saturday like it was in the Old Testament. It can be another day, but trying to find a day or a part of a day that you can can take off and just focus and rejuvenate your soul. Fasting is another way, another means of grace. Enjoying God's creation, enjoying our own creation, listening to music, running heavy machinery, designing buildings, planning a garden, going for a drive, spending time with friends, going out for a round of golf, whatever it is, God can use these things in our life if we do them with the right posture, we receive them as gifts from God, and we ask the Lord to use it in our life to draw our hearts close to Him. So there's certain activities that we do to grow and to prepare just like Elijah stacked wood on the altar. This is the way we say it in our member statement of faith. Our elders have proposed a member statement of faith to our congregation uh, this spring. And the way we cover this particular topic is this. 
We say the work of Christ secures the believer's salvation and begins the process of transformation into his likeness. Jesus works in individual believers and in the entire and entire churches to grow and change them over time. Out of love for Christ and while transforming into his image, we obey. Here we go. Here's some more wood stacking. We obey. We do good works. We love others. We flee temptation. We fight the flesh. We endure hardship. And we pursue holiness. These are good things. This is wood stacking. But let's not miss this. Let's remember, referring to Elijah on Mount Carmel, these activities may stack the wood, but there's no promise that these activities will ignite the fire. This is an important differentiation to make. This keeps us from navigating our own souls. Here's what I mean by that. There is no promise, for instance, that if you fast and if you pray and if you read your Bible, that you'll no longer struggle with lust. There's no promise that if you go to church and if you hang out with other Christians, that you'll no longer struggle with addiction. There's no promise like that. These aren't magical formulas that we do that somehow help us attain holiness. Holiness isn't something we can attain through an action plan. So we have to be very careful. It is possible for us to read our Bibles all year and to go through the Bible chronologically as a church and never miss a day and read it 10 times a day and be just as sinful on the other side of this year. You say, well, good night. What's the purpose in doing it then? What's the reason in doing it? I think this will help. This is the last part of our message and the last part of that statement. First part, we said we stack the firewood, but the second part says, and trust God to send the fire. Just as only God can bring about salvation, making us genuine Jesus followers, only God can bring about transformation, changing us over time to be more like Jesus. Our transformation, even though we participate, even though we stack the wood, our transformation is still a divine work of God that takes place in his timing and in his way. Look at Ephesians 4.23 with me. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We could just talk about this verse for an hour and I'm not gonna do it, but this idea of be renewed, it's continual. It's not one time, it's continual. Well, we don't just wake up one day and our life is perfect. It's continual, it's present tense. It's also passive. It's something that happens to us. The verse before this in Ephesians 4.22, he says, put off your sin. And in verse 24, the verse after this, he says, put on good works. Those are things we can do. And interestingly, the timing of both of those verses is right now. Do it right now and never plan to go back. It's like one particular time, do it right now. But in verse 23, he's so pastoral. It's so, it's so real, it's so raw. He says, no, understand this, Christian, you're not gonna change overnight. 
You're gonna be growing and changing until Jesus comes. So let me renew you in the spirit of your mind. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Philippians 2.13 says, it is God who works in you both to will and act according to his good pleasure. John 15, four and five says, Jesus says, remain in me, Christians, remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself, but it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Back to the sun illustration, the tanning illustration that happens outside of us. When we dedicate ourselves to spiritual discipline, and that's a good thing, When we dedicate ourselves to the hard work of the Christian life, that's a good thing. When we dedicate ourselves to the means of grace that we talked to earlier about earlier, that's a good thing. Let us make sure that we are trusting in God while we do those things and not trusting in the deed itself. Does that make sense? Like it's possible for us to say, to set our alarm clocks and say, I need to pray 30 minutes a day. Okay, ready? We'll set my alarm clock and I'm gonna pray 30 minutes a day. But really never pray to God. The act of prayer alone does not transform the heart. Only trusting in God and a Godward prayer is the kind of prayer that changes the heart. Therefore, in all of our spiritual seeking, It is only God who can bring real change. That's why when we read our Bibles, don't just read your Bible to say you did it. Read your Bible to look and learn something and love something about God. When you pray, again, James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Don't worry so much about the words you pray. Don't worry so much if you've got the posture, the formula right. There is no formula. Just pray and talk to God. When you meditate and contemplate, hope in God, Psalm 42, 5 and 6. When we gather with other believers for weekly worship, please do not think that gathering for worship alone changes the heart. Being in church doesn't make you a growing Christian any more than you standing in your garage makes you a car. Just because you come here does not mean that all of a sudden it's going to change you. But when you come here, come looking for God. Spend time with other believers, but always see someone else behind them. Look for God in them. When you're fleeing temptation, you're fleeing addiction, don't just run from the temptation and run from the addiction. Run every time to God. Let's not replace bad habits just with good habits. Let's replace bad habits with a search for God. Let's not just fast just to fast but let's fast to search for God. Let's enjoy God's creation, yes. Let's enjoy our own creation, yes. Let's enjoy our families, yes. But even in the good gifts of life, 
Let's start to see life differently. Let's see it through the lens of God. I'm convinced that if we approach life this way and we will begin to look for the beauty of God, we're stacking that firewood like Elijah says. We're stacking that firewood. The Lord will do something in our hearts as we seek him because he promised to do that. James 4, 8. Draw nigh to God and he'll draw nigh to you. This is what will happen in your life when you begin to trust God to send the fire. Psalm 27, 4 says this. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Ephesians 3.19 says, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you might be filled with all the measure of the fullness of God. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for me. It's what I want for my children. To be filled with all the fullness of God. Kyle Strobel writes this. He says, the knowledge of God is of the beautiful, glorious God. To know God is to love him and to love him is to know him. This is why light demands heat and heat light. One cannot have true knowledge of God without loving him. Likewise, one cannot have true love without knowing God. Unfortunately, more often than not, fallen people, and that's us, that's all of us, that's fallen people, that's me, that's you, try to have one without the other. To receive both light and heat is to understand God and it will turn your face to him in affection. In other words, when we do our spiritual disciplines looking for God, not for the spiritual discipline itself, it creates affection in our hearts. One more quote by Kyle Strobel. He writes this, once we see the beauty of Christ, our inner clocks are set to the pace of heaven's time. Think about the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. Maybe it was a a sunrise or a sunset here in the mountains. Maybe it was a sunrise or a sunset at the beach. But you saw it clearly and you know what you saw. But seeing with your eyes was not all that was going on. You grasped it as beautiful and your heart, your, your inward part was inclined to it. Deep beauty moved you. It increased your heartbeat. It shortened your breath. You didn't just know it in your head, but you felt its beauty in your heart. This is why in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the cross is to them who are unsaved, to them who perish, it's foolishness. But unto us who are saved, the cross is the power of God. Talk to someone who knows nothing of Jesus, who knows nothing of salvation, who knows nothing of their shame being removed. Tell them about the cross. It just isn't gonna make sense. But talk to someone who knows their sins have been forgiven. Talk to someone who knows they deserve to go to hell. But Jesus died in their place and rose again and pulled them out of the mire and offered them salvation that they received by grace. Tell them about the cross. And then their hearts 
their hearts are gonna be moved affectionately. I'll never forget, and you don't have to go there to experience this. You can do this in the scriptures, but I will never forget the moment. It's etched in my brain. We were at Golgotha, the place where we're 99.9% sure Jesus died on the cross. There's a big crowd, a number of people there. They have it, it's ornate. But around the bottom of the hill, there's a place that you can go around and you can just touch the mountain. You can see the mountain. You can touch the mountain. There's no power in that mountain. The power is in Jesus. But in that moment, I was moved emotionally because I thought, how ugly is this place? But oh, how beautiful is this place? That's what the work of God and the fire of God can do in your heart. I want to encourage you. Here's my challenge. It's simply this. Keep stacking firewood and trusting God to send the fire. Keep reading your Bible. Keep praying. Keep gathering with the people of God. Some days you're not going to feel the fire and that's okay. Keep doing it anyway. Keep stacking it. But trust God because he promised, draw nigh to me and I will draw nigh to you. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media. You can also join us in person for services on Thursday at 7 p.m. or Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m.